Well, good morning, everyone. This morning I want to uh, continue with the theme that we've explored the last two times I've been here, and this will be the final time. Start again. <laughs> and now live from... No. <laughs> So this morning, this is the third session, and the last session planned for now, on the theme of loving one's enemies, or in Buddhist language we would say developing greater kindness or metta towards difficult people in one's life. So it's a challenging invitation, a challenging practice. I mentioned this before I was beginning the series with my mom, and she said, why would you want to love everyone? <laughs> and that started a discussion. <laughs> So it's a, it's a challenging practice. It really means that we have increasingly as our horizon the intention to have warmth and kindness as our default way of being with everyone. And it's understood as a practice because this is difficult. It's difficult to not just to love difficult people or to have metta or kindness towards difficult people or people one might at times call one's enemies, it's difficult to have kindness and warmth towards oneself. It's difficult to have it towards people one's quite close to. You know, I remember when I was a student uh, living for a year in Germany, I got to know a family very well there and I would stay with them sometimes. Uh, I, parents had known them when they had lived in the U.S. for a year. And I remember this was um, uh, Frau Ott was her name, <laughs> or Gerdi. We would talk and um, she would say, at that time I was very much uh, sort of identified as an activist, and she would say, you want to really make the world better? I have a hard enough time with my husband. <laughs> and, and so, it, to put things in perspective, so we're taking on uh, quite, a, quite a strong intention, and yet it's very clear that this is the intention. And then I've, I quoted uh, in the last few weeks from different traditions, quoting from the words of Jesus about loving one's enemies, quoting from Buddha to, to, to who invites us and really uh, teaches us to have a boundless heart towards all beings, or quoting from uh, Gandhi who talks about how the basis for his whole model of nonviolent action is the understanding that the deepest core of human beings is love and that if one is to act, one needs to, even towards people one has differences with, one has to bear that in mind. And that has to be the basis for action. You know? Another way of saying that, let me see where this is, is, is from the Dalai Lama. Um, he was asked uh, at the end of a talk, why didn't you fight back against the Chinese? His response, he looked down, he swung his feet a little bit, and then he looked back up at us and he said with a gentle smile, well, war is obsolete, you know. Then after a few moments, his face grave, he said, of course the mind can rationalize fighting back, but the heart, the heart would never understand. Then you would be divided in yourself, the heart and the mind, and the war would be inside you. And I, I also uh, found from uh, Dorothy Day, the, the 
founder of Catholic worker who also combined in a deep way uh, spirituality with um, helping others, particularly those who are most needed. Um, she sometimes said that her work was to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and she said this, she said, we only love as much as we love the one we love the least. What a hard and painful thing it is to love the exploiter. And she was engaged in that all the time. Love in action is a hard and dreadful thing, she said. <laughs> that was her, her language. And so we have that vision from these different sources. And we also suggested, or I suggested four foundational practices to, to, to do that work. You know, the first is to ground oneself ethically, to really take that ethical commitment with the people that one has difficulty with, noting often the temptation to act unethically, even in small ways, with people with whom one has conflict, especially if they did uh, similar actions to us, in relation to us. Someone who acts in a mean way, maybe lies, maybe is unethical in a certain way, it's very tempting to respond in kind. Right? And so a first form of action is to, first form of practice really, is to make that ethical commitment. You know, and again, very, very tempting to, to, especially when one is operating on a larger scale, to not be, not be fully ethical. A second core practice is mindfulness. Really to be with the difficult thoughts and emotions that come up with difficult people. And I pointed out that from an experiential point of view, what really characterizes a difficult person is actually less the objective qualities of that person and more the fact that I have difficult experiences, namely difficult thoughts and emotions with that person, and that I have many, probably, instances in my experience where someone who in the past was really, really difficult is no longer difficult, or that kind of person is no longer difficult. I've worked through that. I'm not so put off by, by certain kinds of people. And so it really points to the way that whatever our response is outwardly, a large part of our practice is to respond in an inward way, to attend toward our own thoughts and emotions in a careful way, to work with anger, to work with fear, to work with judgmental thoughts and so forth, and to have that be a basic part of our practice with difficult people, not to follow that tendency to think this person is objectively bad, wrong, unethical, countless people say so as well as me. <laughs> you know, and to see that there's something about my own reaction that calls for attention. That's the practice. Again, it's a hard one. There's something in our mind, which I know it's quite connected with the judgmental mind, there's something in our mind that when we see something problematic about another person, my responsibility goes out the window, often. Or it feels that way, or I think, okay, this person is clearly doing problematic things. Therefore, the problem is with that person. Therefore, all of my reactions do not need attention. And we're reversing that as part of this practice. And like Dorothy Day was saying, this practice is a hard one. In many ways, we develop the basis for all of these dimensions that I'm calling foundational by practicing them in good times, in, in situations where things aren't problematic. So we practice ethically, we practice the mindfulness, and then we learn how to better, how to be with the difficult thoughts and emotions. And the third kind of practice I mentioned uh, was the heart practice, what we might call heart practices of metta, of uh, forgiveness, of compassion, which are practices that are very, very powerful for working with people with whom we have difficulties. And the, the whole context 
in the Buddhist tradition for the Buddha even talking about this aspiration to be kind to all beings is in the context of practicing loving-kindness or metta. So, again, some ongoing metta practice is very crucial as a starting point, and we practice the loving-kindness initially where it flows more easily. That's really how the practice goes. We practice it initially where it flows more easily. When it gets more and more mature, we are able to more skillfully to bring it to be with difficult people. So all of this is a training, and in, in, in a way, uh, we're introducing, or I'm introducing, higher degree of difficulty situations that at, uh, optimally uh, uh, are handled more skillfully when we have the foundational capacities. So it's as it were, for a beginner, we would really practice all of what we're talking about, the ethics, the mindfulness, the metta, you know, the fourth that I'm going to mention in a moment is the wisdom training. And then we'd have the capacity to respond more skillfully in those difficult situations. You know, and for the, the wisdom teaching, I was mentioning the reflection on the causes and conditions leading someone to act as he or she does. You know, to um, have that capacity to see in a bigger picture. And I think maybe at this point, I brought in another recording from Dr. King. Um, from I, uh, two talks ago, I, I gave a quotation from Dr. King telling a really amazing story of him working with a person who had declared that he was Dr. King's enemy. And Dr. King worked skillfully with him in a short time, and they became friends. It's a longer story, but the quotation is on the, in the talk from two times ago. And here's another quotation from the same talk about Dr. King inviting us to look for the causes and conditions of those that we, uh, those with, those we find difficult. Okay. Getting the grammar right is very important in these talks. <laughs> so, okay. So here is Dr. King. And this is the first time I've played an iPod at a Dharma talk, so we will, I have this lined up. I think yeah. this should work fine. Okay. For in your judging, you may judge yourself to be unkind, unsympathetic, unfeelingful, and unable to see the problems of others. And that leads me to the next point. Our judgment of others is likely to be unfair, seldom if ever do we know all of the facts. People act certain ways, we seldom know why. Seldom do we look into the past, seldom do we look into that childhood, seldom do we look into that disappointment structure. We see them acting a certain way, and it's so easy to judge. This lady is cantankerous. She's mean. And it's so easy to judge, but why is she mean? Maybe her husband isn't treating her right back home. That's the reason she's mean. It's so easy to judge without knowing the facts. What Jesus is saying is this. Judge not. That in judging you judge yourself so often to be unkind. Somehow we must come to see that people are as they are so often because things make them that way. And I've seen it around again to get old. I've gone to dope addicts put my arms around them. And I've looked at my black brothers and sisters so often, caught up with dope in the ghetto, and it's so easy to stand back and judge them. It's so easy to stand back and criticize, and suddenly dope addiction is a tragic thing that must be criticized. But then somehow we must learn that that person who's a dope addict is a dope addict because so often certain forces have driven them there. 
we forget the system that made them that way. And in judging that dope addict, we had better judge that something that made individuals that way. You know what makes me very angry about this thing when you hit it? Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. King. <laughs> so, so that, so those are the four, not as loud as Dr. King. <laughs> okay, that's okay. Um, those are the four foundational practices that we gave for working with difficult people in one's life, people who one sees as one's enemies. The ethical practice, the mindfulness practice, the heart practices, the wisdom practices. What I want to do for the rest of today is to bring in some further perspectives and practices which I've generally grouped under ethical practices, body practices, heart practices, and mind practices. Okay, In that grouping, I want to talk about some further perspectives and then I want to also talk a little bit about the way of seeing at times how we may have enemies that reflect some part of ourselves that we haven't addressed. There can be a way in which self, lack of self-knowledge <coughs> may have us relate in certain ways to difficult people or enemies because in some ways the enemy is a part of ourselves that we're not in touch with. Quite a quite a powerful area to look at. So that's what I want to do for the rest of the time, and then leave a um, good amount of time for us to talk together. So I was thinking these are some further perspectives, and I was thinking I could have a like a a checklist because I probably have about 15 points that we could add, and this could be your checklist that you bring, you know, to your next difficult family gathering or something. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was also thinking it'd be wonderful actually because each of these are really implied practices. It'd be very interesting to like do a 10-week class on this very topic with support and say, okay, for this week we do this practice every day. And we, do, we go through in 10 weeks, we go through 10 different practices so that we become further grounded and further um, experienced in ways of working with difficult people or so-called enemies in one's life. I think it could be I had that idea just uh, this morning, actually, that that could be very valuable. Okay, so here divided into four areas, and I'll be primarily talking about the heart practices and the mind practices. So first is action. It's really important to see that sometimes when we have difficult people in our lives, or so-called enemies, it's important to act and to respond, to prevent damage from happening, to respond to the situation that our invitation to look inwardly does not at all mean that we don't act outwardly and that we want to combine that. That some situations where someone might be acting unskillfully, even as we don't want to turn that person into a polarized enemy, we still may need to respond, we may still need to act in a given situation. That's very important. And um, there's that, let me go, I'll just mention that other one other action, and then I'll go to a related uh, body practice, uh, or maybe I'll, I'll mention that that practice because I gave a uh, I gave a particular exercise last time. But related to that, in terms of action, um, it's at the same time that we may need to respond to prevent damage from happening. It's also really crucial to take care of ourselves. In certain situations with a difficult person or enemy, this, again, this is not at all to say we don't take care of ourselves. That is very important in being with a difficult person to do that which keeps, takes care of yourself in terms of negative energy coming towards you. Just to mention that, kind of obvious, but important to mention. And last time I gave a practice, last week I gave a practice, which I had learned from actually from James Barras, of actually visualizing when one's interacting with a, with a difficult person, a shield around one's body that protects negative energy from going inside and deflects it off into compost. <laughs> okay, so, so there are practices like that. So another, another interesting action to, to work with at times with a difficult person 
is to give that person a gift. It's very hard to have a polarized attitude towards someone else and have that be there in this, with the same strength after one gives a gift. Mm. Just mention it as something to think about. It also, so if you have a very polarized, uh, difficult, conflictual dynamic, uh, giving a gift will change your mind and it will certainly may confuse the other person. <laughs> it may confuse the other person out of his or her conflictual attitude. Mm. You know, it's, so it's very interesting. Can you give an example of a gift? Well, it could just be something small. It could be you're having a difficult interaction with someone close to you, and you actually just you know, say, let me take you out for dinner. Or let me, or here's a beautiful book I saw. Not, it's not trying to, you know, make your points with the other person. It's just, it's a unilateral, unconditional gift. You know, and so could, you can try it with people close to you. And it's really about, it's about you, you know, what I'm really giving is a list of a lot of different tools. We have a big repertoire of a lot of tools for being with difficult people. And then see what is appropriate. But it, it can try it with people close to you. It's, it's something that can shift, as it were, a polarized or stuck dynamic. You know, that this, and it can shift not just for the, uh, for the relationship, but also for you. For you, to, you might say, give a gift to this person at this time. No way. And so and then actually to do it can shift something in, in, in us. So very interesting. Okay, so a few body practices. I mentioned this practice from last time of visualizing a shield around you can imagine a particular color, and I, on, on the recording from last time, there's the, the guided meditation on this, in which we can actually, uh, it's one way of protecting ourselves and working with the body, that when we're present to someone, we have to be careful about taking in the negative energy of the other person, you know, and there are different ways of doing it. I remember hearing a story of a Zen teacher who was giving a public talk, and he had a very, very angry answer from someone in the audience. And he stood up and he moved his arms like this, as if to move the energy <laughs> to the side, you know, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't get into his heart. Yeah. That he, and he, he was being humorous, but he was, I think, actually uh, recognizing that uh, there are skillful ways to be with difficult energy, with someone else's anger, someone else's hostility, and so forth. Because we know that it can really, we can really take it in, you know. And martial artists, I think, learn how to do this quite well. You know, so uh, studying martial art wouldn't be a bad idea if you're really deeply interested in this, <laughs> this area. <laughs> you know, or something like Qigong or Tai Chi, because a lot of it's also learning to ground one's energy. You know, for me, learning to have my energy really grounded in my belly was extremely helpful. You know, because I think for myself, I had a, you know, I found in my own evolution, I had a fairly open mind and an open heart, and others' energy could really knock me around. And I found a certain training to really have a way of grounding with the earth. This, and this is a, you know, could be an involved body training, but one can do it in various ways that actually training to have a, a clearer sense of grounding with the earth and holding one's energy in one's belly, which is what a lot of what martial artists do. And it's called the hara in, in Japanese and, you know, and something like Aikido. They hold the energy here. For one thing, it's a lower center of gravity. And uh, I have found that doing that and holding my energy in the body and the belly when I'm in a difficult situation really helps me not to be knocked around so much and not to take in so much negative energy. So there are a lot of body practices like this, which, again, um, some of the work in martial arts, particularly meditative martial arts, can be very uh, skillful in that. So heart practices and further practices and perspectives. Um, the practice of metta, very, very beautiful and powerful. The perspective is that one's difficult person eventually becomes one's friend. And we can hold that perspective. There's a, I wanted to read a wonderful story from, uh, from the life of Gandhi, you know, because Gandhi and King, 
held that perspective that people that they were really in quite a powerful um, what um, social process with the British you know purveyors of empire and and southern uh, racist particularly with King that they still held out the aspiration that for example that the, their their op opponents would eventually become friends you know and they're very beautiful models you know in a lot of traditions some of you may know the work of Sultram Alioni who has a book called Feeding Your Demons based on ancient Tibetan practices in which the intention is that those forces within oneself or outside which seem demonic will eventually be worked with, recognized and become allies. Very, very interesting. You know, I have a, I have a vow which I've developed over the years which I say to myself four times a day. It has a line in it which, which came from a friend of mine, the wording may my demons and dragons become allies and helpers. It's a, it's, a, it's a perspective. So this is Gandhi doing just that. This is a story of Gandhi doing that. Gandhi was told that he would be visited by a British official who would threaten him with prison if he did not give up what the British considered to be the subversive activity of marching in protest of the British salt tax. This is about 1931. Gandhi's advisors suggested putting nails in the road to puncture the tires of the official's car. <laughs> you will do nothing of the sort, said Gandhi. We shall invite him to tea. <laughs> Crestfallen, his followers obeyed. When the official arrived, he entered full of pomp and purpose. Now then, Mr. Gandhi, the so-called salt marching has to stop at once. Otherwise, I shall be forced it's not really a British accent. Okay. <laughs> now then, Mr. Gandhi, the so-called salt marching has to stop at once. Otherwise, I shall be forced to arrest you. Well, said Gandhi, let's first have some tea. <laughs> the Englishman agreed reluctantly. Then when he had drained his cup, he said briskly, now we must get down to business. About these marches. Gandhi smiled. Not just yet. Have some more tea and biscuits. There are more important things to talk about. And so it went. The Englishman became increasingly interested in what Gandhi had to say. He drank many more cups of tea and ate many more biscuits until he was completely diverted from his official task and eventually went away. He went away one over to Gandhi's cause. No, no way. Gandhi <laughs> <laughs> what was in that tea? What was in that tea, Gandhi... Gandhi used the medium of tea, an English ritual that implies civility and mutual respect, and literally fed this enemy until he became an ally. His tactic of feeding rather than fighting contributed to one of the most extraordinary nonviolent revolutions in history. So there's that intention to become friends you know, and to act in certain ways. Forgiveness can be a very beautiful and powerful practice with one's people one has difficulty with. It's, an, it's, a, it's a hard practice. One can do an internal forgiveness practice. You know, we often use lines like, if I have hurt anyone in word or thought or deed, may I be forgiven. And then we can invite, uh, we can ask for forgiveness or we can um, forgive the other. If this person has hurt me in word or thought or deed, I freely forgive the person. And it's a very deep practice. And it's not something that can be forced. <clears throat> and often we need to go through anger or other emotions before we even get close to forgiveness. It can't be forced. But it's, it's an aspiration. It really is an aspiration about noticing that having an enemy or a difficult person keeps us locked up in reactivity and saying, as long as I have this enemy, I have reactivity which leads to suffering. And the aspiration to forgiveness is not at all to forget what happened, it's not at all not to set boundaries, it's not all at all to condone what's happening, but it's to really say, I don't want my further suffering to continue, my further reactivity. 
Jack Kornfield has a nice one-liner where he says, forgiveness is giving up the hope of a better past. And so forgiveness practice, compassion practice, very, very powerful. We can do compassion practice much like metta. We can use the line that I use is, may I be free or may you be free of suffering and the roots of suffering. And we say that phrase and we sit with it. May I be free of the suffering and the roots of suffering. And we actually can tune in, perhaps guided by the reflections, such as what Dr. King was suggesting, we can tune in to the chain of events which led to the person being as he or she is, which inevitably has suffering from Longfellow. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each of their lives sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each of their lives sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. And there's also the practice uh, we might call the practice of empathy, very difficult practice, where we actually try to say, maybe in a conflictual situation, what is my opponent or my difficult person feeling? What really matters for that person? We break down the usual polarization. Again, not to say that we don't set boundaries, that we don't act, but what usually happens with people that we have... uh, certain kinds of conflict with, the empathic connection disappears. And we go into a polarized mode where we judge and where we're often um, um, not able even to feel our own feelings. So we can be empathic, we can reflect on that other person's situation, as well as trying to get a sense of what the feelings are. And then lastly, I wanted to mention some mind practices, mind and wisdom practices. An important part of working with difficult situations and difficult people is that often the other person may have done unskillful things. And it's important to recognize those. And we can use an aspect of what I've taught here at other times in the judgmental mind practice to distinguish between discerning accurately what the other person has done and judging harshly what the other person has done. It's important to actually see clearly what's happened and what's been done. But there's a whole set of internal practices that we can do, and wisdom practices included, that can, when we stay with the difficult emotions and we look at the judgments and stay with them with mindfulness, the, the judgmental energy gets turned into this compassionate discernment. We see that this person has acted skillfully, we have some sense of the causes, and it's no longer the judgmental mind. It turns into discernment linked with compassion. We probably know this in some situations, that this is possible. It's also possible with a difficult person where we may have some conflict, when we reflect on the other person's deeper interests or needs, which is quite difficult, and we reflect on our own deeper interests and needs, it's possible to contemplate a win-win solution or a both-and solution. This is what visionary work with conflicts does. It looks to seemingly intractable situations and we learn to see the situation so that we can see more deeply what's the underlying legitimate need of each side. And I know from having done mediation a number of times that one can train one's eyes to see in this way, almost intuitively, that I can be with others and of course it's easier as a mediator because I'm not in the situation. But still, it's very easy to get sucked in by the stories of either side, right? So another mind practice is to be really, really careful of the stories you're telling. You're telling yourself about the situation. Can one look with empathy at what both sides really deeply need and imagine a win-win way of dealing with the present situation or conflict? Typically, we structure conflictual situations as win-lose situations. I win, you lose, usually. I win because I'm right, you lose because you're wrong. How many situations do we structure in that way? Mm -hmm. A lot of them. So we learn 
to train our minds to look in a different way, to see in a different way. So I wanted just to say a few words. I, I realize that I'm giving a lot of tools, a lot of perspectives, each of which we could devote many sessions to. So it's a little bit giving tools, some of which we've covered in this, in this class over the, over the weeks. So I wanted to mention a last perspective, which is that some of what causes us to form difficult people and enemies may be because we're not facing something in ourselves. I, I had quoted from Thomas Merton last time, very powerful quote. It is not only our hatred of others that is dangerous, but also and above all our hatred of ourselves, particularly that hatred of ourselves which is too deep and too powerful to be consciously faced. It is this which makes us see our own evil in others, and unable to see it in ourselves. You know, again, or I had quoted the psychologist Carl Jung saying that that which we really don't know deeply in ourselves, we tend to project out onto others where we encounter it as demonic. You know, it's a powerful teaching. And so all of this, you know, and, and so we can do something, um, we can actually look in ourselves when we have a conflict and ask, is there some part of me that I'm not facing? Is there something I can learn from this situation? And um, maybe Maybe I'll, I think I'll end, there's a lot more I could say, but I think I'll end with a practice that, and maybe we can go more into this dimension of things. Um, I'll end with a practice which I did, I've done for a lot of years, and I learned it from a man named Robert McDermott, who, uh, who uh, used to be president of CIIS in San Francisco. And I was part of a group with him about, that started uh, almost 25 years ago. And I was, at that time, I was a young uh, teacher. I was teaching at universities in the area of philosophy. And I was invited to be part of a program, which was a really an innovative program. It was called Reliving, Revisioning Philosophy. And it was connected with Esalen. It brought me out to California. I was, at that time, I was uh, teaching in rural Ohio you know, at Kenyon College interesting college um, and there were there were about 25 people maybe initially about 20 people in the program some wonderful people in who had some connection with philosophy the, the intention was to bring philosophy back to its origins and wisdom and saying that in universities and in professional philosophy it had become overly technical and had lost its original connections with wisdom such as we find for example, with the Greeks, with Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, where philosophy literally me means love of wisdom, love of Sophia, which means wisdom, the female goddess of, of wisdom. And, and so we were wanting to bring it back, the wisdom dimension, bring back the connection with, with the emotions, with the body, bring back a lot of disconnected areas. And wonderful people, some of you may know Houston Smith was in it, mm -hmm. uh, Jacob Needleman, from uh, San Francisco State, some, maybe some. How many? Anyone study with Jacob Needleman? Maybe some of you. Some of you have. And um, Susan Griffin was involved. We did programs on gender issues. Uh, there were people who were working with business ethics. There were, we had people at different times. We brought in liberation theologians from one from uh, Mexico, Enrique Dussel. We had we had wonderful people as part of the program over, over the time, and, and wonderful people, you'd think it was just going to be wonderful. What happened, <laughs> <laughs> what happened was that not too long into us being together, we found that people had different views, <laughs> <laughs> and people started to become reactive about other people's views, and these wonderful people, years of spiritual training, <laughs> uh, found themselves being reactive and getting polarized with certain other people's views. You could see it developing in the room. You know? It was very interesting. And, and, and so Robert, who was a member of the program, this was before he was at CIS, he uh, gave us a practice which really had an impact on me. He said, 
let your noticing of a difference of views with another person be a starting point for inquiry, not a starting point for war. And ask yourself, what is going on with me? What kind of reaction do I have about this other person's view? What's going on with me? What might I learn from this other person? Is there something in my own background which makes it difficult for me to accept this view or learn from this person? What is there in myself? Is there some, some way that this reaction reflects my own ignorance or something in myself which is not developed? And take this as an inquiry and use all of your reactions as chances to look inside yourself and try to be open to this other person and learn. And so that was, for me, that was tremendously exciting. And I really found myself able to use that practice as a guide. It really is a guide that can help us to take back some of the parts of ourselves maybe that we haven't explored. Because we're all in a way, we all go through a process when we're young that we might call fragmentation. We are born relatively whole in some way. But we all have difficult experiences in life, and some part of ourself gets lost. Some part of ourself gets fragmented. You know, someone may tell me to um, uh, don't be angry. When you're angry, suppress it. I can get that message. Or someone may be scared in a way as a parent of the amount of energy I have and say, can't you be a little less energetic? We want to get some sleep, you know, <laughs> right? and my energy may be dampened. Some of that energy gets fragmented off. It gets lost you know, in some way. My anger can be fragmented. My li- aliveness can be, f- can, be, uh, can be dampened. We can have difficult experiences where we're being ourselves in an authentic way and we get told by a parent or a teacher, don't be that way. And something gets lost. And this all tends to get fragmented off. You know, and much of our adult life is finding those pieces that are missing or that were were fragmented. And the perspective here is that working with people we find difficult sometimes can be a way of also finding those fragmented pieces. It's quite interesting to see our reactions, to notice why we are so reactive towards this person. I'll end with this, but in psychology, the mechanism is sometimes called projection. That I tend, maybe because I'm something in me is unconscious, like let's say I uh, am suppressing my anger, I project onto angry people the fact that they're bad because they're not suppressing their anger like me. And angry people trigger me and they may become among my difficult people. And so when I actually do some inner work with let's say the angry person, similar to what I'm mentioning, or uh, we may be able to recover and even go back and recover that fragmented piece and work through that and come to greater wholeness. That's kind of the vision. Let me finish by <coughs> reading a poem, which is another expression of this aspiration to ultimately have no enemies and ultimately come to everyone with a sense of potential connection. A long, deep practice, what Dorothy Day called hard and dreadful at times. Mm. Right? Not easy, but it's, it's an aspiration. This is a poem, some of you know, by Thich Nhat Hanh called Please Call Me By My True Names. Beautiful poem. You may not have heard it for a while. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant, 
selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate, and I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true name so I can hear all of my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion. Let's just sit and let that settle and let the talk settle for a few moments. some time for questions, reflections, discussion about anything that was uh, explored or anything that was catalyzed by the talk or your meditation. Please. Question. So all of this makes a lot of sense um, for me. Yeah. Um, When I go into mother mode, uh, (laughs) there is something very biological that happens that... um, seems to kind of throw this off for me. Yeah. Like there's a very natural instinct that that I'm fighting against. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the question is about this teaching of approaching everything with kindness as an aspiration seems to go against the what what again it's from mind everyone <coughs> I mean. Patty. That what Patty finds in mothering where there seems to be a what a certain biological, what she interprets as biological tendencies, what, to... Override, to protect. To protect. To protect. To protect, and to, and so that someone who is a potential enemy, uh, there's no possibility of having compassion towards that person at times. Well, there's there's the ability for compassion. I, I can see the person's woundedness. Yeah. But when it comes to hurting my child... Yeah. Um, like all burners are on yeah. protection. Yeah, yeah. And and how how would you respond to that in terms of uh, how does your practice come in at the same time as your your very you're deeply committed to to protection, right? So the first response is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I have a very hard time finding balance yeah. when it's uh, with them. When yeah. it's with myself, I can take it, I can yeah. sit with it. Yeah. Yeah, so a few, a few thoughts occur to me, and we may have some collective group experience here <laughs> <laughs> of working with I imagine we have a lot. Um, one thing that occurs to me is that uh, we have, we for, recognizing that this practice is a deep and difficult one. And that there are different gradations of difficulty. There are different gradations of difficult situations where different factors arise that make it very, very difficult. uh, Two things there. One is that this is a very difficult situation. Involves your commitment to their survival and so forth, and it seems to carry the weight of a few billion years of evolution, perhaps. <laughs> and so, so recognizing, recognizing that it's a very high degree of, of difficulty, and you can practice at 
continually at lower levels of difficulty mm -hmm. where these factors aren't involved, that will inform how you address this situation. Because I think it is a very high degree of difficulty. And if we would all imagine our most difficult mm -hmm. situation, it would, might be hard for us to bring this teaching there right now. Mm -hmm. And so we, in a sense, keep on practicing where it's less difficult, and that will inform how you are with this. Because I think it's, it's analogous to any number of situations that probably we could mention right now, where it just feels like the sense of, um, maybe a sense of antagonism with a given person is just so intense for various reasons that there feels like the heart feels completely closed down. There feels like no way I can go there right now. And we work up to it. That's, that's really, um, that's a way of holding it. Um, it's interesting that in the Metta Sutta, the Buddha kind of goes the opposite way. He says, can I be like a mother towards all beings? And he uses that very deliberately. He says, even as a mother with her child, her only child, that sense of love and warmth and care cannot be extended to others. So he uses that model. And then it's interesting, in the Tibetan tradition, it's a very common reflection, given the context of the belief in rebirth, to imagine that every being that one encounters has been one's mother. <laughs> and that one's been in a mother-child relationship with every being in the vast sweep of history, which includes other beings as well. And so the, the paradigm of, of uh, the mother-child relationship is actually quite central for some of this, but some other factors are brought in. So I think mostly just to see, just to continue exploring, know it's difficult, but, but also practice a lot at other levels. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe I'll leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. Maybe um, it's possible at the moment, allow the <coughs> first and then yeah. yourself maybe say, stop. But, I mean, just yeah. as a kind of start, instead of going into the whole rash, you know, business, something simple. Yeah, that, that's very allow. helpful. That, that uh, there's something about, first of all, right, recognizing the desire to protect, right? It's really the question of, does my desire to protect shut me off from others? Right? That's, you know, and we can see that on other levels, like foreign policy. Right? Mm -hmm. you know? um, mm -hmm. Seriously, yeah. this, the same issues can come up there, you know, in, in terms, you know, or, or does my desire to protect, which is a completely legitimate need, or might there be alternative ways to do it that are less uh, polarizing? That's in the long run what we're looking at. You know, and are there other approaches that are possible that still have the deep fundamental commitment to protection? That's really not to, I don't think there's anything here about negotiating that away. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a given. Mm. Other reflections, please? Yeah, yeah in the moment when um, someone's acting unskillful towards you, um, in terms of your response, um, <coughs> sometimes it seems, at least for me, that it's it's helpful to respond to them and uh, try to point out, you know, what's going on. Yeah. And, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes yeah. I feel like if I don't respond, yeah, I get really frustrated. It's yeah. Like, so I just wanted to see how you would address that. How how to address that? Um, how to respond skillfully in a, to a difficult person when there's some conflict, antagonism. Big topic. <laughs> Could, in fact, uh, yeah, uh, I think the, the last day long I did on speech, mm. the whole afternoon was focused on how to respond skillfully in speech when there are difficult circumstances. Unfortunately, I didn't, did not record that. <laughs> but I recorded a similar day long so if you look on Dharma Seed there are some I think there's a two and a half hour session on responding skillfully and we also have dealt with that some here but the, that's more for future reference but the quick answer would be um, 
there's a lot that one can practice in terms of skillful speech. A tremendous amount. Uh, the, the key concepts for skillful speech are to avoid language that puts the other person on the, on the defensive. If you can, try to be empathic. Try to have a sincere interest in what the other person is experiencing, which is hard in the moment of conflict. And to use language that is not interpreted as aggressive or blaming or judging. So a lot of it can be language in which one speaks of one's own experience. Now, all of this has to be prefaced by saying, be realistic about who you're interacting with and the capacities and interests of that person. You know, some people <coughs> will be stone walls. Some people will be receptive to your empathic comments. Some people will say, Ah, don't give me any of that spirit rock stuff. <laughs> been, I know you've been going to spirit rock. I don't want to hear one bit of it. Just fight me like a man. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. I sense that. Don't, don't say anything or do. Yeah, yeah. So, so have to know. Context is everything, right? Context is everything. If there's a person with whom you can have, who who is uh, potentially one can be empathic with and may have some understanding, is not a stone wall. Then speaking language that reflects to one's own experience is, is usually helpful. You know, um, uh, to uh, say that was to say. That was, when you said this, that was really frustrating for me. I, was, I felt very frustrated. Rather than saying, you, um, you were so judgmental. Your comment really felt so judgmental to me. You know, I don't want you to do that anymore. That will likely keep the cycle going. Now, nothing's guaranteed to work because we, we don't know all the factors involved. But generally speaking, to depolarize the situation by being empathic, using skillful language. Sometimes it's very helpful to take a break, to come back later if the situation is not right. In Thich Nhat Hanh's community, they have an agreement to deal with every conflict within a week. But they suggest that the present moment is often not the best time. You have to come back when it's cooled off a little bit. You can have perspective. Of course, they have a commitment to skillful speech and so forth. Um, and so timing, very important. Uh, you can remember um, skillful speech, wise speech, timing, and trying to come out of a warm heart. You can do a certain amount of inner work at times. It can be very important to do. So. And, and again, maybe to, to reflect on that possibility, you know, uh, if it's a conflict that seems really polarized, contemplate what a win-win solution would be. You know, you know, it's very helpful to do, you know, in work situations or where you're actually may have a lot in common, you know, really to contemplate. Uh, is there, and then you have to be out of the conflict sometimes. It takes imagination to really see how to get out of that, you know. I, I have a lot of confidence that most of the protracted conflicts in the world, actually there's a, there's an, there's a, the imagination can go to a good solution quite easily, but people are so stuck in the, in the conflict because there's typically there's so much pain and therefore so much righteousness that it's very hard to get out of it. And I believe that. Yeah. Maybe uh, two more and then we'll, then we'll finish up, please. I just want to say, I took a, uh, I've been coming for a while, you have done the same sort of series a few years ago, yeah. and I have a client, had a client, I now don't, I'm used to cut hair, so this woman, an older woman, very angry, very, yeah. she was just ranting about things and getting these discussions. Anyways, and after your talk, and she has a sense of humor, so this yeah. was with her. But at one point, she was going on and on one day, and I looked at her and I said, I think you need a hug. Yeah. And I gave her a hug and she was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I said, <laughs> I love you. And, and, and you're, you know, however yeah. I worded it. And um, that was then the, that you know, from then on out, when she would go on her rant, I would just look at her and give her a hug and she stop and you know it was it was it worked great i thought <laughs> it was a great solution but it's it great specific to that situation and very that specific yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but to try it in others and report back please uh marty 
Um, well, for the sake of minor. the recording, let me just say that was to recommend with a difficult person, very difficult, very difficult person, the technique of unilateral hugging. <laughs> minor two stories. One happened to me, and I'll just be very brief. It's not to be sensational, but it's to illustrate a point. Um, I was held up by gunpoint in San Francisco after a class at 10 o'clock at night as I was going to my car. Two uh, young men, I couldn't even see who they were, um, uh, got me into my car at gunpoint. One drove the car, the other had a gun at the back of my head. And I instinctively started talking. And I somehow or other made a connection. We were talking about, you must have voted for Reagan. And I said, no, I didn't vote for Reagan. <laughs> I, I mean, it was, it was, we just, I said, you know, I have children at home who are waiting for me to come home. Uh, what about, do you have children? No, we have, we don't have any children. Well, what about your parents? They don't care. And uh, anyway, bottom line, uh, they asked for my ATM number. I said, I can't remember it. They drove me around, got me out of the car, had me lie face down on the ground and took off with my car. And I was just ecstatic because I had my life. After I told my mother this story, she told me an event that happened to her where she was walking in Central Park in New York as a college student with her girlfriend and they were held up by um, a very disturbed young man. And she instinctively began talking and engaging him. And he relayed that his girlfriend had been gang raped. And he was going, he just wanted to get back. But as they talked, he landed up walking them home. So my point is. Somehow or other, in whatever situation, I mean, as Donald, you know, you can't always guarantee that you'll be able to make a connection. But if you're in a desperate situation, what else are you going to do? Uh, and I, I'm just saying, I instinctively did that. My mother instinctively did that. And it worked. So somehow or other, there is some way of making a human connection. Obviously, that's what Gandhi did. That's what Martin Luther King did. That's what many people managed to do somehow or other. And mm -hmm. it's harder with my husband. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so thank, thank you, Marty. That's very powerful stories. I actually have a similar experience in Central Park. <laughs> Um, yeah, where I was young and naive, and I just just got really interested in talking to people who came up with negative intentions, and we just ended up hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> I was pretty young then. So. Um, any case, but the, I think I think it's good to come back to the principle, you know, because we don't want to get uh, sort of loose perspective because of certain extreme examples. These are very extreme. Right. That, you know, and, and to find that these principles sometimes work in extreme circumstances. And there are a lot of other stories which are similar, which are quite amazing, you know, which we could give in extreme circumstances. But the main point is that the, the principle of attempting to connect, to depolarize, works in very ordinary situations. It's really, we should give the focus to the principle and less to the, yeah. the actual examples they can teach us, but the real point is to, in a conflict, to or in, a, in a polarized situation where I have an enemy, is to use some of these practices, probably have named 15 or 20 in the course of these weeks, mm -hmm. and to see which work ones work in the situation. And, and most of the practice that we can do, the stakes are not real, real high. They're not extreme situations. They're very, very ordinary. And we can work with the <coughs> all of these principles and practices in those situations. That's really the intention. And then, when when and if an extreme situation comes up, I think we will have been prepared. We will we will have been trained. So let me just end with that. And 
I will be back here, I think, in actually in uh, four or five weeks. It will be a while. So sorry to miss you for a while. <laughs> but um, may your practice with difficult situations, with challenging people, may, may it thrive. And may it thrive because it rests on the very simple and basic practices of living ethically, being mindful, developing the open heart, and developing more wisdom. That's what it's about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We offer the fruits of all of this to the whole world. Thank you.